This is Bart Peterson, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Jonathan Armstrong, and you're listening to the FCPA Compliance Report. This is Greg Gilchrist, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'd like to welcome you to Episode 407 of the FCPA Compliance Report. Today, I have another in my continuing special episodes around the summer of a thousand podcasts where I take a look at one topic when where we have come from over the past five years. Today it's the FCPA and FCPA compliance. I recently had the chance to sit down with Michael Volkov, founder of the Volkov Law Group, and we talked about what has happened with FCPA enforcement and FCPA compliance over the past five years, and more importantly, where it may be going forward. It's a fascinating exploration of where we were, where we are now, how we got where we are now, and where we may be going in the future. As always, Mike has some great insights, and hopefully uh, our dialogue will really help you understand what is going to be the next best, effective, operationalized compliance program going forward. The FCPA Compliance Report is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. So I'm here with Mike Volkoff. We were at Converge 18 in cold but cloudy uh, Broomfield, Colorado. And we are here to talk about one of the, the topics around my Summer of a Thousand podcasts. And each of these podcasts, I'm doing a five-year retrospective on the topic of the podcast. And so for the FCPA Compliance Report, I wanted to sit down and visit with Mike on not the changes we've seen over the past five years or so in FCPA enforcement, but now really I think we both have come to the conclusion that uh, looking back, it was a clear uh, movement towards what culminated, culminated in 2017, the new FCPA corporate enforcement policy. So Mike, with that incredibly long-winded introduction, welcome. Well, thanks, Tom. It's great to be here. It, we're outside of Denver, and it's uh, it's beautiful, actually. Uh, but uh, we can't see the mountains, I hear, but uh, they're out there somewhere. So, Mike, you had a phrase that I used many, 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 many times, which was reading the tea leaves. Right. And we used to get FCPA enforcement actions, speeches by DOJ officials, uh, perhaps even the FCPA guidance, and we would have to deign to read the tea leaves as to what it meant. But looking back now, I think uh, you've certainly seen a clear path uh, that the uh, Department of Justice engaged in. So uh, where do you want to start? Well, definitely, uh, let's start with the policy itself that was uh, announced in 2017, because I think it, and I think this new administration is absolutely operating under it and are committed to it. And if anything, uh, Matt Miner, uh, one of the deputies, made a recent speech about expanding it to mergers and acquisitions. But the important part is that they set out standards, they created a presumption of a declination, but they set out standards for how much of a discount you get based upon specific factors. And looking back on this over, let's say, the last five years or so, there is a clear path to where they were going. Reading the tea leaves for me was always looking for consistency among the uh, enforcement actions. And we, you and I, would compare notes on this. Isn't this the same? Isn't, oh, this is different. And we try to figure out where the staff was going and where the leadership was going. And I think what we ended up with, I think the 
important part was, and I, I give you partial credit for this, as well as the whole sort of commentary group, on the need for transparency. And you were one of the early advocates for publishing reasons for decisions, and you sort of, uh, and, and I think you did it with, uh, with honey as opposed to with salt or whatever. Um, in sort of persuading uh, the department, and I think that there was a need to do that politically, and they knew that they had to come clean a little bit more to the business community. So we used to look at how much of a discount, what was the nature of the behavior, and look for patterns. And I think ultimately what's happened is all of those patterns, with some sanding at the edges, have now come out into the corporate enforcement policy, and I think Businesses are now, they have clear guidance, and they can make the trade-off decision about whether or not to have a volunteer, whether to engage in a voluntary disclosure, knowing full well what the expectations are going to be and what potential benefits they're going to be. But we were, for many years, taking the guidance, the hypotheticals that were in the 2012 guidance, coupling that with individual actions, and then speeches, individual speeches, and trying to say this is where they're going. Now we know where they are, and frankly, I think uh, it's it's a great place, and I think um, I think the department should be really proud of what they've put together because I think it, it took a lot of hard work. So, Mike, for me, looking back now, I really see the 2012 FCPA guidance issued jointly by the Department of Justice and Securities and Exchange Commission as a seminal release of information. Not only did it detail the... Uh, enforcement strategies and enforcement actions that the department engaged in. It had the 10 hallmarks of an effective compliance program. And uh, two things that you have consistently talked about, one was the hypotheticals, and two was the creation in mergers and acquisitions of Safe Harbor. And you really, uh, I think, as much as anyone have talked about why the hypotheticals were so critical and so, so important, but it seems to me now, looking back, the 2012 guidance gave us the framework to do compliance, and then some of the enforcement actions going forward applied those principles in terms of discounts given. It, absolutely, and the guidance is my favorite document. Somebody who wants to learn about compliance. Even in 2018? Even in 2018, I think it's more valuable than anything that's been put out including the 2017 uh, evaluation of corporate compliance programs, which is a hundred something questions. Because in one place you have an extraordinary statement. There's not one uh, prosecutorial program in the whole federal government where prosecutors have laid out standards, expectations, and, you know, granted, we want to know it down to a granular level, but what they provided there, those six pages of the hallmarks of an effective compliance and ethics program are the bedrock for a lot of chief compliance officers and planning and what they try to do. The other thing that I say is life is we, we search for safe harbors in life. When we're out in the storm, we look for safe harbors. And... Um, the guidance gave us a lot of safe harbors. They gave us some on, for example, bringing state-owned enterprise officials to your plant to see, um, you know, how you manufacture things and how you, how much money you can pay for them, how, what kind of gifts are appropriate, mergers and acquisitions, what's your standard. So I think um, there's a lot that's very valuable there. 
And I know uh, we've talked about this, the opinion letters, to the extent you use those, provide certain safe harbors to the extent you can say your facts uh, meet the uh, opinion letters. So there's an extraordinary amount of guidance out there in this area. And frankly, anti-corruption compliance has led compliance. Um, for a while, after the Patriot Act, it was anti-money laundering compliance. Right. And now, what is sort of being transferred into other disciplines or other risks is the principles underneath anti-corruption compliance. And ultimately, enforcement and steady and consistent enforcement is what has come as a result of this. So Mike, for, for me, the first two cases that I think we both scratched our heads over were the Hewlett-Packard FCPA enforcement action and the Parker Drilling FCPA enforcement action, both released in April of 2014. And, and the reason I certainly scratched my head was Hewlett-Packard uh, received some discount off the bottom range of the sentencing guidelines in the face of clear and systemic uh, bribery and corruption. Parker Drilling also received a discount uh, with C-suite involvement in the bribery and corruption. corruption. And uh, certainly I couldn't understand how you could receive a discount. Now in November of that year, Patrick Stokes gave a speech at the ACI National FCPA Conference and he explained why they got discounts. It was because even though neither company self-disclosed, they engaged in extensive cooperation and extensive remediation. And that was really the first time I'd heard a um, Department of Justice official articulate or link those two concepts with a discount. And then moving forward into 2015, uh, Leslie Caldwell uh, gave a series of talks in November and December of that year, laying out more and greater specificity for compliance programs and cooperation. And then that led to something that uh, I still think was a really a seminal event, but it's not talked about as much, which was the pilot program. And you've talked about the pilot program in terms of uh, not only what it did, but the Department of Justice truly used it as a pilot. And that that, the experiences from the department, they're fine tuning after the pilot program. Uh, then of course we had the release of the evaluation of corporate compliance documents, uh, excuse me, corporate compliance programs, all leading to the uh, uh, new FCPA corporate enforcement policy. Do you see that sort of line as well? I, I see that line, and just to take a moment back in history, um, all of this goes back to my old mentor who used to come up with brilliant ideas while lying on a couch, and that was Judge Stanley Sporkin, who first came up with the idea of why don't we have a disclosure uh, type of program and he was the head of the SEC at that point. And that line started with him. And I think it's been refined through the years. And I think the, the department, the, what you are talking about in terms of 2014, 15, is absolutely the path upon which FCPA prosecutors travel. And I think there was a push from the business community and some political realities that moved the prosecutors to try to regularize this. And frankly, the pilot program was the first acknowledgement of we have to do something more here and we have to put it in writing and we have to make it clear to the business community as opposed to, again, reading tea leaves through those two enforcement actions, a speech by Patrick Stokes or a speech by Leslie Caldwell. Granted, we liked it because we could you know, analyze it and whatever. It was like the Kremlinologists who used to uh, 
you know, look at who was standing where. We used to do that, but now it's just become a lot easier. And notice how some of the factors have reappeared in the F that you mentioned, the FCPA enforcement policy, corporate enforcement policy, pervasive conduct is a factor that can be a, a disqualifier for the presumption. Doesn't mean that you won't get the 50% discount, but you may lose the presumption. And uh, 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 senior executive involvement. So there were fa these are factors that they've always been balancing. And the fact is that these are now regularized in terms of their inquiry. And so when you go in to try to persuade them, the, fact the factors are there for you to address. And it's much more clear. I think it provides a lot more uh, stability and consistency in the way that the FCPA is enforced. Mike, one important document I did not mention because it really hasn't come out of it did not come out of the fraud section, and it's not directly related to FCPA enforcement was the Yates memo. And the Yates memo made clear that the Department of Justice uh, uh, expected self-disclosure for a company to receive any. Uh, credit going forward. So um, we had the overlay of the Yates memo where Sally Yates through the memo made clear the department expected self-disclosure. But the thing that struck me about the uh, pilot program and, and I guess it's uh, going forward was that the department, it's my understanding, they had some, some pretty vigorous debates in the department about what credit to give, whether a full declination or a partial, the pilot program came down on a partial declination, but that was expanded to a full declination in the uh, FCPA corporate enforcement policy. Is uh, From your experience uh, in the Department of Justice or in the Antitrust Division, is, is th are those types of debates sort of ongoing? Absolutely. Um, and I think what happened was the staff, in that case, the FCPA unit, with regard to the pilot program, wanted to give a full declination uh, um, and maybe even the presumption idea started there but at the deputy attorney general's level and that was Sally Yates's level at that time they said you know this is too much to bite off politically at this moment so they cut it back for the pilot program to 50 percent and said let's start with that but I think what they heard is from the bar and from the business community we need more certainty as to this and I think that um, the issuance of the Yates Memorandum made it clear that they're really more interested in, in prosecuting individuals so that companies now can make a better argument. Hey, give us more incentive. We'll find the culpable individuals and we'll turn over the information. And if anything, the combination of the Yates Memo with the corporate enforcement policy has, I think, change the dynamic. We're seeing more individuals prosecuted in the last few years. We've seen the declination policy working and uh, you know there was one with the uh, recently with the uh, that was issued where the seat uh, where the political figure the recipient of the bribes was prosecuted and the company was let uh, got a, a declination. So this is all culminated together and I think the department is at the place that they want to be at right now. Where this will go, I'm not sure. I think we're going to see five years of evaluation of what's been going on lately. That's what I think. So I'd like to take a minute to focus on the, the document entitled Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Programs. That was released uh, uh, in, by the fraud section in February of 2017. 
turned, uh, it was uh, not a new document, however. It turned out initial drafts had been made by Wei Chen as early as December 2015. And it was designed to help uh, department prosecutors think through and ask questions of companies who were under an FCPA investigation about their uh, corporate uh, compliance programs. And, and what it did for me in the compliance program context is actually sort of took the um, 10 hallmarks and effective compliance program and not so much refined them, but gave them uh, greater expansion and new directions to go. And so I saw it really as supplementing the 10 hallmarks part of the FCPA guidance. And that's really the other thing, theme that I have seen is the department really grow in its knowledge of corporate compliance programs, its sophistication around corporate compliance programs, and to understand and more than understand, actually test companies to see if their program really was effective. Well, I definitely agree. Uh, there were some, there were certain aspects of the enforcement policy that should be highlighted. And I think the department has come as far as they can go. They've come right up to the line of saying, we expect chief compliance officers not to be in the legal department or not to be in any other department. But they're unwilling to prescribe that just because they don't want to force companies to you know, adopt that solution where it may not be the right solution. But what they did in the corporate enforcement uh, policy with regard to the independence, authority, and stature of the chief compliance officer was they, they went further than say, saying, well, we expect there to be independent, the chief compliance officer to be independent, to have the requisite authority, obviously to have resources to do their job. But then they tried to professionalize the, the, the compliance uh, practitioners in the sense that they wanted to make sure they were qualified, that you had a staff that, that had compliance expertise, and that they were adequately compensated. And I received lots of joking messages, which was, hey, I should be getting a raise because of the DOJ policy. And in fact, I think what they're trying to say is we expect to see compliance treated like any other independent function be it audit, finance, be it um, uh, legal. We don't want to see these people treated as second-class citizens, and I think that was a really important message that came out of the uh, enforcement policy for the chief compliance officers. Mike, since the release of the FCPA corporate enforcement policy, we've had a couple of additional uh, pronouncements which have become a part of the U.S. Attorney's Manual. In May, we had but uh, I, in my football metaphor, call the anti-piling-on policy right. announced by Rod Rosenstein. And you've already referenced uh, Matthew Miner's speech in July regarding expansion of the uh, FCPA corporate enforcement policy to your safe harbor for uh, mergers and acquisitions. Uh, it seems to me that uh, exactly as you have opined that the uh, Department of Justice is using the um, information that they have developed through the FCPA unit and the corporate enforcement policy to look at other areas as well. It definitely. And look, the Yates Memorandum, the first evidence we saw of the Yates Memorandum, for example, was in the car safety cases. They indicted uh, six individuals in the VW case, two individuals or three individuals in the Takata airbag case. That occurred soon after uh, their failure to indict individuals, which I thought, of, thought should have occurred in the GM case. But nonetheless, 
the policies that they're promoting, we've already had a statement made that, for example, the corporate enforcement policy for the FCPA in the criminal division, they're applying it across the board now. Right. And to me, that proves your point right there, that they're taking certain things that are developed in the anti-corruption area, and they're just simply saying, okay, here's an asterisk. Now it applies across the board. Um, and same with the anti-piling on, which is something that I think was already occurring in the anti-corruption space, but now we're, they're saying, okay, well, we're going to look at it in healthcare fraud cases. Um, are we, is HHS getting too much on a civil settlement uh, versus the criminal settlement versus whatever? So I think that um, there's definitely, if you want to see where the department is going to go in terms of corporate enforcement policy, look first at the, at the anti-corruption area, and then you're going to see things start to move um, in terms of how they do that. Uh, one area that sort of is carved out from that is uh, the antitrust division because they've had their own sort of leniency program and there have been issues brought up now about whether or not they're giving people credit for their compliance program. Well, that's as a result of what occurred in the anti-corruption area and how they were sort of the pace setters in that. And people went to the antitrust division and said, hey, where are you giving us credit for that? Yeah. So again, no matter what's going on in the department, there are sort of pushes to broaden uh, tools that are being used and um, sort of evaluations of, of uh, policies and programs that start in the anti-corruption area and may extend to other areas. So you, uh, we talked about two, which is the anti-piling on and the safe harbor. Uh, and I guess the other point for me is that both of those policies were generally going on informally. Uh, in 2016, I heard uh, Daniel Kahn, head of the FCPA unit, and Kara Brockmeyer talk about the anti-piling on policy and the concept of one pie. And then the safe harbor has been around since at least the 2012 guidance at least in the M&A context. And, and, and actually, I think you pointed this out, Tom. Uh, there were two cases, uh, one an SEC case and Johnson & Johnson, 2011, where that was sort of the beginning, uh, the walk away from the Halliburton uh, opinion letter for mergers and acquisition 0802. Right. And so what happened there was it started first with those two decisions, and now there's more focus, and then it was, it was repeated in the uh, guidance, and now it's as clear as can be that the integration process is what they care more about in the right. merger and acquisition, and that you conduct an FCPA audit post-acquisition, post-closing, and you have about 18 months to walk in and, and disclose anything that you find so that you can sort of uh, absolve yourself and move on. So that has absolutely been a transformation. Uh, and, and Matt Miners sort of saying we're going to apply this policy to M&A, informally I think it was, it was already going on. Right. But I think now um, everybody can count on it. Uh, the one part about his speech that I thought was interesting was uh, he was encouraging people to use the opinion letter uh, process. And if anything, I think we've seen a decline in that. We still don't have one or two decisions coming out every year. The last one was actually 2014. I've, I've started a new podcast series on the opinion releases. And so I've actually had to research that. And uh, part of it was... That Why do you think that's true that they have... Uh, nobody's taking advantage of it anymore? Uh, for 
people are afraid to open the kimono. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I think uh, hopefully the people will see that it's a, a process that, that can be used. It can be used successfully. It provides specific guidance and specific cover for a company that goes through the process. And for people like you and me who advise clients, I think it's a wonderful source of information. So um, I'm like you, I'm a little befuddled, but the last one was literally in our name, 1402. So that's how long ago. And the interesting thing is if you look in a, a, an analogous, analogous circumstance in the anti-kickback area at HHS, they have an opinion, an advisory opinion process that is used frequently. Um, and they have complex regulations on whether or not a transaction, uh, you know, is legal or not. And there is more certainty around the FCPA, but you and I know that there are lots of gray areas where people, you got to scratch your head and balance various factors. And I would think we'd see more people coming in to seek a little more guidance because I'm, I'm sure they're not, uh, the department isn't handing that out over the phone. Uh, if you call them, they're not going to give you that. So it's interesting to see that p people are sort of avoiding it. Maybe they're just afraid that, hey, this could lead to an enforcement action, and that's the last thing we need. So Mike, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time, but this has been a great exploration of uh, sort of the past five or six years in uh, FCPA world. Well, thanks, Tom. It's always good to see you, and I appreciate the opportunity. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. If you have any questions on this episode, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Next week is the week of Thanksgiving, and we're going to not have a posting of a FCPA compliance report, but I hope you'll join me again the week after Thanksgiving when we'll have another episode of the longest-running podcast in compliance. This is Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist. The FCPA Compliance Report is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>